Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. All right, if you'd like to come up, you can come up. John chapter 7. So this is uh, Sukkot. This is the culmination of the seven festivals that are observed by the Jewish people uh, during their calendar of events. We've been looking at prophecy as we've been studying the book of Revelation. And when we came into the High Holy Day season, we sort of took a tour around the seven different festivals, what they signify, and how they speak of God's plan and program, especially with regard to Messiah's coming, his first coming and his second coming. Of course, the latter three festivals deal with the return of Messiah. Uh, We've had Rosh Hashanah, which is the Feast of Trumpets, which we said related to the rapture of the body of believers, as well as the regathering of the Jewish people, which will be accompanied by the blowing of the shofar. And very shortly after those events, the tribulation period will unfold on the earth. And so Yom Kippur was a day of affliction. And so the period of tribulation is a day of affliction uh, on the earth, a time of affliction particularly for the Jewish people. Remember on Yom Kippur, they were to be afflicted both in body and soul. And so we saw that the tribulation period is meant to afflict the Jewish people in both soul and body, in their soul, so that they would look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for one as one mourns for his only son. And to be afflicted in body, we're told in Zechariah, two-thirds of the entire Jewish nation will endure the suffering and will die. One-third will come out refined as gold and silver are refined, and then enter into the Messianic age, which will be established for a thousand years. The Messianic age, which follows the period of tribulation, is signified by the festival of Sukkot. And so even as Yom Kippur, which signifies a tribulation, gives ground from a period of affliction to a period of rejoicing, so in the history of the world, there'll be a period of affliction, which will be followed by a period of rejoicing when Messiah comes and reigns on the earth. Now, before we look at John chapter 7, there needs to be some backdrop But I don't want to spend a lot of time on the background on Sukkot, even though I know that's very interesting, and some of you perhaps would be hearing it for the first time. But the message that Yeshua gives, or the the events that occur when Yeshua celebrated Sukkot, is what I really want to draw our attention to this morning. But if I may say, let me just say a couple of things about Sukkot before we look at what Yeshua said, so we can understand what he said more fully. First of all, there's five references to Sukkot in the scripture. First of all, Leviticus chapter 23, where we have the seven festivals. And in Leviticus chapter 23, we're told that we're to come to the temple with the four fruits of the land of Israel. Now, I brought three of those fruits with me. I forgot the ethrog of all things, you know, which is the most significant of those of the fruit. And so because this is the end of the harvest festival of the summer and the beginning of the harvest festival for the autumn, four fruits are commanded to be brought into the temple and Jewish people bring them into the synagogue. Now, the ethrog, which is what I don't have, is like a giant lemon. It's a beautiful citron. It's just gorgeous fruit that has great fragrance and taste. 
And so it's considered the greatest of the fruit because it has both fragrance, it smells like a lemon, and it has taste as well. Now, the other items are what I have in my hand. There are three uh, vegetations that grow in Israel. One is the palm branch called the lulav. Not as significant as the ethrog because while it bears fruit, the palm tree bears fruit, the lulav or the branches has no fragrance. So it only has one of those two things, whereas the ethrog has both. So the lulav represents the palm trees. But it also represents other features of the land of Israel. Because the land of Israel is a unique land that God has given to his people Israel. It represents the hills and the mountains that are in the land of Israel. Now, they don't have the Rockies. But they have Mount Hermon, which is about 9,000 to 11,000 feet above sea level. So that's their highest point. So they have a mountain. But they have the, the hill country of Judah. And they have a lot of hills and mountainous, or maybe I should just say hilly areas in the land of Israel. But it also has significant valleys, like the lowest place in the world, right? The Dead Sea, the Jordan Valley, as it flows to Jordan. Uh, to the Dead Sea, the Jordan River to the Dead Sea, the lowest place on the earth, 1,500 feet below sea level. And then you have the Valley of Jezreel, Armageddon, which is like a 20-mile plain or a 20-mile valley. And so the spaces between the uh, branches of the lulav represents the valleys as well. So the palm branches represent these fruit trees in Israel. The pointiness represents the hills and the mountains. The spaces between represents the valleys. And then we also have these willow branches. They grow along the Jordan River and a lot of the river banks. And so it is to remind us of those watery areas, those wet grounds. There's not a lot of wet, but you have the Jordan River, you have the Sea of Galilee, and of course you have the coast along the Mediterranean or the Great Sea. And the willow branch is not as great as the ethrog because while the ethrog has fragrance and taste, while the palm branch has fruit but no fragrance, well, the, um, the willow has neither fragrance nor taste. So it is less than the ethrog. And then you have the myrtle branches, and the myrtle branches grow in the valley areas like along the Kidron Valley that separates the Mount of Olives from Mount Zion, the mountain of Jerusalem. And because the myrtle branch has fragrance but does not have fruit, it's less than the ethrog as well. It's kind of interesting how the rabbis think about this, right? So the ethrog has fruit and fragrance. The palm branch only has fruit, no fragrance. The myrtle has fragrance, no fruit. And the willow branch has neither fragrance nor fruit. So these are considered less than the, uh, the ethrog. Now, in the time of the temple, when the Jewish people gathered in the, in the temple, they would pray for rain because this is the beginning of the rainy season in Israel. And so in Israel, you don't have a, the winter is really a rainy season. They get snow in certain areas, like Jerusalem can get snow and Mount Hermon. But for the most part, there's not a lot of snow, but there's a lot of wet. And there's a lot of rain. If God blesses his people. Because Israel doesn't have a major waterway, the Jordan is all the way on the east side of the land of Israel. And of course, the Mediterranean is salt water. There's no waterway for Israel like the Nile River was to Egypt or the Euphrates and Tigris was to Babylonia or Nineveh. There's no major waterway. So the way that water was provided for Israel was by the grace of God. He had to cause it to rain. And when he caused it to rain, then a lot of the underground springs would be filled and fresh water would flow, even as the, Jordan, the Sea of Galilee is a fresh water body of water. It's actually a lake that is spring-fed, what happens is the snow on Mount Hermon melts, and it goes through these underground uh, sort of tributaries and through these springs, and it comes up into the Sea of Galilee. Really quite e extraordinary. And I remember back in the 70s when I had opportunity to visit Israel, we went way north uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And the Syrians, when they controlled a certain area further north, they had built a pool for the officers. And the pool was just overflowing with water. And that's because it was spring-fed 
from the uh, snow that was melting from Mount Hermon miles and miles away. And here we were in the summer, it was like June, must have been about 105, 100 degrees up there or so, it was pretty hot, and jumped in, it was like ice cold water in the middle of all this. It was one of the most extraordinary and wonderful experiences uh, being in the land of Israel. But uh, the, the, the uh, point is, there's no natural waterway. God has to cause things to rain. And so the Jewish people on Sukkot pray for rain. And as they pray for rain, they pray that God would pour out upon Israel not only rain, but also the Spirit of God. That's why Isaiah chapter 12 is read. It says, uh, with joy we will draw water from the wells of salvation. And the rabbis understood the wells of salvation to be the well spring of the Holy Spirit. And the rabbis concluded that if the Spirit of God fills us and dwells within us, then we will walk humbly before our God, obediently before our God, and he will then give us rain. So what we need, we need rain, but the way to get rain is by being a holy people. And so when they prayed for rain, they also were praying for the outpouring of the Spirit of God upon his people, that we would be the holy people that God had intended for us to be. And if we are that holy people, then the rain will come and our land will be nourished. And so on Sukkot, since it's the beginning of the rainy season, we pray for rain. And if God is gracious, not only will we have the former rains, but what the Bible refers to as the latter rains. And so the former and latter rains are the early rains and the later rains. And if we have early rains and later rains, then the harvest could be three or four times what the crop would normally be. And so when the prayer for rain is prayed in the synagogue, everyone that has a lulav begins to shake it. And they shake it to the east and then they'll shake it to the uh, south, and they'll shake it to the north, and then they'll shake it to the west. And they pray that God will bring rain throughout the land of Israel. When the temple stood, the Jewish people would gather, and they do this in the synagogue on the last day, but in the synagogue, in the temple, the Jewish people with the lulav branches would gather around the altar, because on the altar, 70 bulls would be sacrificed. 70 bulls, because in Genesis chapter 10, there are 70 nations. And so atonement is being made for the nations of the world as well. This is a festival that thinks about the Gentile peoples, because in Zechariah 14, we're told not only will the Jewish people during the time of the Messianic age be expected to observe Sukkot, but the Gentiles also are commanded to observe this one particular festival during the Messianic age, the festival of Sukkot. And that's found in Zechariah 14. So what happens is in the temple, the Jewish people would circle the altar as the offerings would be offered. And as they circled the, the altar, they would be carrying the lulav branches, the ethrog in their hands. They'd carry it together and they'd be shaking it as they would circle around the altar, praying for God to bring rain, praying for the Lord to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, to both Jew and non-Jew alike. And on the seventh day of the feast, the last day of Sukkot, they would circle the altar seven times, reminding us of the times when the Jewish people circled the city of Jericho seven times and the walls came down. So they circled the altar seven times, praying that rain will fall from the heavens. And so this is a time where the Jewish people pray for rain. So in Leviticus chapter 23, we're told that we're to come to the synagogue, come to the temple, bearing the four fruits of, that come from the land of Israel. In Numbers chapter 29, we have a second reference, which tells us about the 70 sacrifices that were to be offered representing the Gentile nations. And then in Deuteronomy 16, we're told that it's one of the pilgrimage festivals, along with Passover and Pentecost, when all of the Jewish people are to gather in Jerusalem to worship the Lord, and it's to be a time of rejoicing. In fact, the Jewish people are commanded to rejoice. So if you came with 
a sour a sour attitude this morning, you have to leave it at the door so that we can rejoice because the Lord commands us to rejoice this day. It's to be a holy convocation with rejoicing and celebration and with great joy. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Then in Nehemiah chapter 8, we're told that when the law was restored and the law was uh, re-read, on the time when the Jewish people came back from the Babylonian captivity under the leadership of the Persians, that in Nehemiah 8, it says that they celebrated Sukkot for the first time since the time of Joshua. Evidently, throughout the time of Israel's time in Israel, from the time of Joshua through the era of the kings all the way to the exile, Jewish people did not celebrate Sukkot for some reason. But when they came back to the land, Nehemiah chapter 8, we're told that the Jewish people then celebrated Sukkot for the the first time. And then in Zechariah chapter 14, we're told that the Jewish people and the Gentiles will celebrate Sukkot during the Messianic age. And then the last reference is in John chapter 7. That's what I wanted to draw your attention to. So let's turn our our Bibles there uh, for a moment. There's so much to be said about this festival because it is so fascinating and interesting on so many levels. But I want to share with you what Yeshua taught on this particular occasion and the impact that it had. So now look at John chapter 7. Beginning of verse 1, it says, After this, Yeshua went about in Galilee. He did not go up to Judea because the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. Look at verse 2. Now, the Jewish feast of booths was at hand. This is Sukkot. Sukkah, the word sukkah means booth. Sukkot means booths. And we're to be reminded of the wilderness wandering when the Jewish people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They dwelt in temporary booths. In fact, the Lord himself dwelt in a temporary booth called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, which was temporary, could be packed up and then moved, set up again, until Solomon built the temple, then a permanent structure was created. But even God dwelt with his people in a temporary dwelling. And now this temporary dwelling has to be made in a certain way. You'll see it outside. It is to be covered on the three sides, entrance in the front, but on the top, are to be the uh, palm branches so that you could look through up to the sky. You're to look through up to the sky because we're to be reminded during the day that the Lord watches over us as we see the clouds and at night when we see the stars, that God is the one who is watching over us. It's to be a sort of temporary kind of structure, flimsy structure, because we're also to be reminded that without God's sustaining power, And God's sustaining grace, we can never make it through life. Because our life is a fragile one, even as the sukkah is fragile. And when the elements come against us, sometimes it can seek to unravel us, destroy us, turn us upside down. And we have to remember, we're able to endure the tragedies and trials and challenges of life because God sustains us. And so when we go into the sukkah, we're to see it as a temporary, fragile kind of dwelling to remind us we have to depend upon God for each and every need. So now the Feast of Tabernacles is called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. The word booth or tabernacle is what the word sukkah means. Sometimes it's called the feast because it was the premier feast, the final feast of the seven feasts in Leviticus uh, chapter 7. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Salvation, the Celebration of Salvation, because they'll be singing Hoshana, Save Us Now, over and over as part of the prayer that is recited on this particular occasion. So now back to John chapter 7. Now look at this, verse 2, the Jewish Feast of Booths was at hand. His brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret. But look what Yeshua said, verse uh, verse 6. My time has not yet come, but your time is always. We're going to come back to that in a moment. I just want you to see that Yeshua is about to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. Initially, his brothers say, let's go up to the feast. Now, remember who his brothers are. Two of them are writers of Scripture. 
Jude or Judah is one of the brothers of Messiah. James, the writer of the book of James, and to be the first congregational leader of the congregation in Jerusalem is another brother. So now they're not believers at this stage, right? And they're, all, and they're somewhat arrogant. You know, go up so your disciples see you do your works as well. And Yeshua says, no, I'm not going up. Now he'll change his mind and he will go up, but he'll go up in secret, not so as to be seen as Messiah, at least not initially. But I want you to see this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now I want you to turn further down. Look at verse 32. The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, heard the crowd muttering these things about Messiah. What kinds of things were they muttering? So let's go back into John chapter 7. If you look at uh, verse 12, it says, And there was much muttering, there's the same word, discussing, talking about Yeshua. There was much muttering about him among the people. Some were saying, he's a good man. That reminds me of my mother. She would have said, he's a good man. I don't know if she would have believed in him or not, but she definitely would have said, he's a good man, you know? And now you go on down, not only that, but some said, no, he's leading people astray. But yet for fear of the Jewish leaders, no one would speak openly about him. And then you look at verse 14, about the middle of the feast, remember it's a seven-day feast, so three, four days into the feast, Yeshua goes up to the temple and now he begins teaching. Initially, he goes up, he's quiet, he's silent. But now in the middle of the feast, he begins to teach. So they're beginning to hear what he is teaching. And then you go down. Look at verse 25. Some of the people, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? How can he be saying such wonderful things like this? You know, why would they want to kill him? And then they say, and here he's speaking openly. And he says, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that he's the Messiah, but they don't want us to know? Maybe the reason why they are combating him is they know he's the Messiah, but they don't want to yield to him. Some people are already thinking that. You know, there's, you, know you have to remember, there's not one particular viewpoint about who Yeshua is among the Jewish people. There were some that believed in him. There were some that rejected him. There were some that were saying, now, wait a minute. Why would they be so antagonistic to this man when he's saying such amazing things? Could it be that they just don't want to give up power, prestige, recognition? Do they really know that he's the Messiah, but they don't want others to believe in him? Those kinds of thoughts were roaming, were circulating. Others began to say, uh, but can it be that the authorities know him? But we know where the man comes from. And when the Messiah appears, no one will know where he comes from. He's just going to appear on the scene. That was one of the points of view. Whether that's true or not is a different matter, but it's what some people thought. So Yeshua proclaimed as he taught in the temple. Now you go down further. Look at verse 32 again. So while all this discussion is going on, some people think I'm a prophet. Some people think I'm a good man. Some people think the leaders know he's the Messiah, but don't want anyone to believe in him. Some people are rejecting him. There, there's conversation about who he is. So now look what happens. The, the Jewish leadership of the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering, and the chief priests and the Pharisees, now we got the chief priests, the Sadducees, so the bulk of the Jewish leaders sent officers to arrest him. Okay, so they want to take him. Now, go down to verse 46. Certain events take place while the officers are sent to arrest him. But when you get down to verse 46, the officers come back to the chief priests and Pharisees who had sent them, and the officers, and they ask the officers, why did you not bring him? Why didn't you arrest Yeshua? And they say, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. You know, we couldn't take him because what he had to say was so influential. It had such an impact on us. We just, we just couldn't arrest him. So now this is what I want us to look at. What did he say? What was he teaching that it had such an impact on these officers that they wouldn't arrest the man that the leaders had instructed him to arrest. 
So there are maybe three or four things I want to draw your attention to about what Yeshua taught and what he said on Shavuot. So now look at chapter 7 again. Look at the first thing he says I want to draw your attention to. Verse 28. So Yeshua proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. So he's, remember the people were questioning, is he the Messiah or isn't he? Do the leaders think he's the Messiah? We know that when the Messiah comes, we would not know where he's coming from. So he wants to address his origins. Now look what he says. Really quite amazing. Um, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him. For I come from him. And he sent me. Now you know you read that verse. And you can glance over it very quickly. And it doesn't say anything more to us. Than that Yeshua had been sent from God. And therefore, he is one who's come in accordance with God's will. But you know, there's a word there that if you don't capture, you won't capture the significance of what Yeshua has said. And it's a small word. It's a preposition. It's the word from. Take a look at this one more time. Yeshua said, I know him. He's talking about the Father. Verse 29. For I come from him and he sent me. Now, it makes sense if he said, I was sent by God. That would be a true statement, too. God sent him. And that's what he says. But he said one other thing. He didn't just say, I have been sent by God. He said, I come from God. Now, that's a little different. You see, because by saying he came from God meant that he was with God. God. He's not like the other prophets. The other prophets don't come from God. The other prophets are sent by God. John was called by God and sent by God to Israel to be the herald of the Messiah. Isaiah was sent by God to proclaim particular message to the people of his day. Paul was sent by God to be an apostle and to establish you know, whatever congregations he would say, uh, would establish. Pastors are called by God to the congregations or churches that they are to shepherd and they are to lead. But they don't come from God because they were not with God. Yeshua is saying something more than merely saying that he came by God or that God sent him. Indeed, God sent him. But he had existed with God before he had come, for he had come from God. He was with God and came from him and came into our world. Yeshua is making a claim to having his origins in God himself. And therefore, he's making a claim to deity. Now, evidently, the officers may have caught that. Because they're saying Yeshua said things that have never been said before. Because no one ever claimed to be God. No one ever claimed to be from God. They may have claimed to have been sent by God, but not having had their origins in God, with God. He is claiming an identification with God that no one else has ever claimed. That's why John will record him just in the next second, two chapters down the road. John chapter 10, he says, the Father and I are one. And then they took up stones to stone him because they said that he blasphemed, declaring himself to be God. He had already set the stage for this truth by saying that he had come from God. And therefore, he belongs to God. And thereby, he knows God in a way that no one else has ever known him. So when he says, I know him, but you don't know him, he doesn't mean that they don't know about God. They had the law. He's not even saying you don't have a relationship with him. They may very well have had a relationship with him on some level. But what he's telling them is he has an intimacy connection with God that no one ever has and no one ever will have because he's the second person of the triunity of God, which sets him apart from all others. And being set apart from all others, he's one sent from God, not merely by God. 
He certainly was sent by God, but he was one who was sent from him as well. And so when they say no one ever spoke like him, well, he's making a claim that no one ever else could make. But he also says another thing that's quite, quite interesting to me. Go back to the beginning of chapter 7. He says to his brothers, when his brothers say, let's go up to the feast. He says, if you look at verse 6, Yeshua said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Yeshua is not only claiming to have his origins in God himself, but he's now claiming that his life is ordered by God himself. In other words, his time is not in his own hands as his brothers were. He says, your time is always here. You can decide whatever you might want to do. You may want to go up now or you may not want to go up. You have that privilege. I do not because I have come to do the will of the one who sent me. My times are categorized by God's determination for me. And therefore, I just don't don't go up to Jerusalem whenever I want to go up. I have to go up when God the Father wants me to go up. My life is ordered by God from beginning to end. Now think about this. If we reflect on prophecy for a moment, the time when Messiah came was determined by God. Daniel chapter 9 tells us the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel, right? The 70 weeks prophecy. Messiah could not have come to the earth when Abraham was on the earth. Messiah could not come to the earth when Joshua was on the earth. Messiah could not come to the earth when Isaiah was ministering on the earth because Daniel tells us the time frame when he would come. He tells us precisely how many years after the decree that was ordered for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. He had to come within a certain period of time, beginning with a certain decree that he would show up. His time when he would come into the world was precisely determined by God, and prophecy reveals it. His birthplace was not free. He couldn't have been born in Jerusalem. Despite what the Book of Mormon says, he was not born in Jerusalem. I remember sitting down with some Mormons, and I said, no, wait a minute. Yeshua was born, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem, which is what the Book of Mormon says. And I remember the person said, but Bethlehem's very close to Jerusalem. (laughs) And I said, it is very close to Jerusalem, but it is not Jerusalem. It is Bethlehem of Judea. And they said, but I said, it's Bethlehem. You know, I mean, you just can't get away from this. He could not have been born in Nazareth. They thought he was born in Nazareth, people of his day, because he was raised in Nazareth. But he wasn't born in in, in Nazareth. He had to have been born in Bethlehem. Because it was determined by God. My times are not in my own hands, is what Yeshua is saying to his brothers. He's saying, your your time is always here, but my time has not yet come. And so Yeshua had to die precisely at a particular time. He had to die on Passover. He had to die in a particular manner. He had to be rejected by a particular disciple. It says, woe to that one, the son of perdition. It would be better if that one were not born. It's very specific. His whole life was charted out specifically and revealed to us specifically so we wouldn't miss him. So when the officers come back, they say, no man ever spoke like this. No one ever said Their origins are in God. And no one has ever said their whole life is determined by God. And in such a determination, they were submissive to. Our lives are determined by God as well, but we just don't know it. 
You know, we don't know what's coming down the road. But Yeshua knew every step of the way God would have him go. And therefore he would say, not my will be done, but your will be done. And so they said, no one ever spoke like this. But that's not the only thing. Check this out in John chapter 7. He says in verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Yeshua goes up to the temple. He begins to teach the Jewish people. They begin to marvel. They say, how is it that this man has learning when when he has never studied? Well, he never went to a rabbinical assembly, rabbinical academy. But if you look at Isaiah chapter 55, it tells us that morning by morning, the Lord woke up Yeshua and taught him every day. Now, there's no better teacher than God the Father. (laughs) You know, so how did he study? Well, he didn't study formally in a synagogue or in a rabbinical academy. But he did have formal study by his father. That's with respect to his humanity, right? With respect to his deity, he knows everything. But with respect to his humanity, the Lord every morning was woken by God the Father and the Lord taught him. Now, that's unique. That's not true of anyone else. I mean, the Spirit of God teaches us, but he oftentimes teaches us through others. He teaches us through discussion. You know, I'm always leery if people say, hey, I spent some time on a mountain. God showed me. I've got, I, you know, I say, okay, I'm not going to argue with you, but I'm also not going to take that to heart and say, oh, it really happened just as you say, or what you understand is exactly the truth as it should be understood. It doesn't say that when the Holy Spirit teaches us, he's just going to teach us directly without anything as if that's to be praised. I mean, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord gives the gift of teaching. It would seem to me it would be a wise thing to sit under the feet of someone with a gift of teaching by the Holy Spirit to learn from that individual or individuals. And that's why I'm so appreciative of my professors in the various colleges and universities and graduate schools that I've been able to study under. Because these are men of wonderful background, wonderful learning, and woe is me if I'm going to be ignorant Uh, or arrogant enough to think that I shouldn't listen to people who have spent their whole life studying this stuff. It doesn't mean I don't scrutinize and think about it, of course. But it also means I'm respectful and recognizing that they have spent a great deal of time and they probably know some things that I'll never know, let alone don't know at this particular time. So it's not a matter of going out to the mountain and God spoke to me, you know, as if that somehow is a praiseworthy thing. No, I think it's a great thing when we realize that the Spirit of God gives gifts to individuals, we recognize those gifts, and we learn from such individuals, whatever the gifting uh, might be. But Yeshua is different. He's one who has come from God, whose every moment of his life is determined by God, to which he has submitted. And look what he now says. He says, how has he learned without, uh, without having studied? And he says, my Teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. He's talking about his teaching. Not only is he from God, not only is his life ordered from God, but his teaching is from God. So when these individuals begin to say, we've never heard someone speak like this man, what they're saying is his Not only was his claims incredible, not only was his submission incredible, but his teaching was incredible. And why was this teaching so incredible? Because it wasn't his own. It was from God himself. It was the word of God that was being presented and disseminated and explained and encouraged and challenged. And so as the word of God goes forth, as we proclaim the truths that are found in God's word and explain them with clarity and with conviction and uh, with uh, emotion and passion, it grips the heart of individuals so that individuals will say, no one ever, how could we arrest this man? No one ever spoke like him. And then there are two final things I'd like to leave you with. Not only were they impressed with, it, with what he said about his origins, about his submission to the will of the Father, and about his teaching, which had come from God, 
It wasn't like, you know, it's almost like what you read in Matthew after he finished teaching the Sermon on the Mount. They said, no one ever spoke like this. He speaks with authority. You know, when the rabbis taught, they would say, in the name of rabbi, so-and-so, so-and-so, you know, this is what's understood, but then rabbi, so-and-so. And they would never teach in their own authority, but on the authority of other rabbis. But when Yeshua came, he spoke on his own authority and on the authority of God himself. But then there's two final things that are really stunning. If you look at chapter 7 again, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Yeshua stood up and cried out. You know, so here he is shouting out with the top of his lungs. He's crying out with great passion. And it's the final day of the feast, right? So they're circling the altar seven times with the lulav branches. They're performing this water-pouring ceremony that water and wine were poured out on the side of the altar as they prayed for rain, as they're asking for rain, and they're asking for the descent of the Holy Spirit. Remember, they're reciting Isaiah chapter 12. With joy we draw water from the wells of salvation. And they're crying out. And that's Isaiah 12. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord my God is my strength and my song. He's also become my salvation. And with, uh, with joy we will draw water from the wells of salvation. We know the song, right? And that's where it's taken from. And it's recited on Sukkot. And as all of that's being recited and they're going around the altar and the uh, water is being poured out and prayer for rain, Yeshua stands up at this climactic moment and he says, If any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. So Yeshua gave spoke about his origins like no one else ever spoke, spoke about his will, his determination to do the will of God as God controlled his entire life. He taught the word of God like no one else. And now he gave the grandest invitation of all. If any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. That's the first part of what he said. Now think about this invitation. First of all, it's to anyone. I mean, this is Sukkot, right? And here the sacrifices are being offered. The the altar is being circled. Remember, this is the one festival that takes into consideration the Gentiles. Right? Here's offerings for the Gentile nations. This is the one festival that the Gentiles are commanded to observe in the Messianic age. And Yeshua doesn't say... If any Jewish person wants, you know, is thirsty, let him know. He says, if anyone, the invitation is to Jew and Gentile alike. The invitation is to rich and poor alike. The invitation is to young and old alike. The invitation is to any race of people, white, black, yellow, whatever colors are out there and combinations thereof. The invitation is to everyone. And notice this. The invitation is to come to him. I think it's very fascinating. The invitation is not come to the temple. You know? Come to this teacher. Come to this congregation. Come to this church. You got to come here. No, no, no. The invitation is you got to come to Messiah. Wherever he's proclaimed, that's where you need to be. You need to come to me. What a personal invitation that is. Come unto me. But you can't come unless you're aware of your need. If anyone is thirsty, part of our problem is we don't believe we're thirsty, let alone hungry. We believe we're fully satisfied. We believe life is okay. It doesn't mean we don't have problems or challenges. We just think we can make it through whatever the challenge might be. Right now, it may be a hard time, but it won't always be that way. I'll be good. I'm okay. I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm all right. You know, we don't really believe that we are thirsty people. And so sometimes we need to pray, Lord, help us to understand just how impoverished we are. One day we'll see it. We are dead in trespasses and sins, the scripture says. 
Without me, Yeshua said, you can do some things. He says, you can do nothing. Yeshua knew that. That's why he said, my times are in God's hands. Your times are always here. You think that you can make your decisions any way you want. Yeshua knew that you couldn't. That's true for us too, ultimately. But what a grand invitation, right? He says, if anyone, it's for everyone. All we need to do is recognize we have a need. We just have to thirst. And all we have to do is to come. We don't even have to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We just need to know, I'm thirsty. I don't even know what I'm thirsty for, but I know that I have needs. He doesn't say those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness come to me. He says, if anyone is thirsty, maybe you don't know what it is I need to drink. Maybe you don't know, I don't know what it is I need to eat. It's him ultimately. And you may say, I'm happy with things. But you're going to find that your happiness will be short-lived. There's only one thing that will satisfy for all of eternity, this life and all of eternity, and that is coming to him. So when the officers come and they say, why didn't you arrest them? He said, no one ever spoke like this. How could we arrest a man who's inviting us to come to him to have our needs met? How can we turn on him? This is the one who has eternal life. And that's not the last thing he says. The last thing he says is he offers a glorious promise. If any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink, for out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Do you want to be a life spring? Do you want to have joy? That's what this festival is about. I mean, real joy that flows from the depths of your soul because God is taking care of me, even when it doesn't look like it. God's in my life. And there was a time Yeshua walked a hard road, the valley of the shadow of death, but he is with me. And so this is the glorious invitation that we can have and the glorious promise. We could have life and have it more abundantly, even in the crucible of hard moments and hard times. He's telling us the promise is that you could be a life spring. And I think this is interesting too. Out of, out from your bellies, your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You get the connection? The thing is, you'll connect, you'll be a blessing to others. He's not just saying, I'm going to make you a happy person, although we'll be joyous. Why? Because we're blessing others. It flows out from us to others. And so now our concern is not ourselves, but others. And the only way to that end is by coming to me, coming to Messiah, coming to Yeshua. And thus at the end of the cycle of festivals, right, beginning with Passover, death of Messiah, it concludes with this invitation, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, and I will have the life of my Father flowing in and out from you, so as to impact the lives of others, and to bring great joy to yourself. Don't we want that? You know, that's what we really crave. And so when the officers were asked, why didn't you bring him? They said, if you only heard what we heard, if you only experienced what we experienced, you would realize you can't arrest this man. You can only worship him. You can only thank him. You can only praise him. Let's let's pray. While we're praying, the, the worship team can come on up. and The ushers can get ready. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning and this word. Indeed, Lord, you are a great God. You are a good God. You are a holy God. And you're a generous, compassionate, gracious God. Father, how could anyone reject you? How could anyone seek to arrest you when they, if they would just listen to what you say? and how you have said it. Father, may we not lose sight 
that you are from God, sent by him, and yet from him, as one who is wholly righteous, as one who is God come in the flesh. We bless you for coming into our world to make the difference that we all need. We thank you, Lord, that you lived your life so as to fulfill the will of God perfectly. You came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And thus, your times are in the hands of God, and thereby you obeyed him, even going up to the festival when it was in accordance with the will of your Father and not your own. Lord, we thank you for the word, the teachings that you have given to us from yourself and through those that you have ordained as teachers with the gift of teaching and were used to inscribe the very words of God found in the scripture, found in the Bible. We thank you that you were one who proclaimed the very words and essence of truth of the word of God. And Lord, it has gripped our hearts and our souls, even if we haven't understood it completely or fully. But what we've come to understand has so impacted us that we could do nothing less than to receive you as you are. We thank you for this most grand invitation of all, for anyone, anyone of any age, of any background, of of any social status, anyone, can come to you. All we need to do is admit our thirst, for without admitting it, we would never come. But once having come, you have given us a most glorious promise that life will percolate in our innermost being and will flow out like a rushing river impacting the lives of others. And so, Father, we pray during this joyous celebration of Sukkot that we would rejoice because we've come to know you. And so might you move upon each and every heart where there's a need to confess you as Lord. I pray that individuals would do just that and that they would respond to your invitation to come to you and to make you their Lord, Messiah, King, Savior, and Redeemer. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.